Well, good morning, church family. I trust you had a good weekend. I went to the pumpkin patch in shorts and a t-shirt, and I didn't wear flip-flops, but I wanted to. So uh, I think this is the last of the nice days, but uh, if you have a Bible, turn to First uh, or Second Corinthians, last chapter, chapter 13, towards the end of the New Testament there. We are finishing our series through First uh, and Second Corinthians uh, after a, a long haul. Um, but as you're turning there, I would uh, just share with you, Landon shared, we're going to be in a new series, and I think we have an image there. Uh, we'll be taking a few weeks, um, and then November 8th, we'll start The King We Need, a series through First and Second Samuel. Had a lot of people ask me, what are we studying next? And the logic behind going there was after several of us reading through it and the, the pulse of our nation, if you will, right before these books in the book of Judges, there's this phrase or this sentence after each chapter that says, and then they did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, that's happening in our world right now. And so Israel wanted a king and God gave him a king. But even in Samuel or Saul rather, and then David, even in those two kings, it wasn't the answer, and it's not an answer for us. Christ is the king. We need him more than ever in our world, and we need people to see that he is the only hope. doesn't matter what happens in political structures and governments. And so I'm excited about First and Second Samuel. That's where we'll be headed um, back into the Old Testament to look through that narrative. So that's starting on November 8th. Um, but we're going to read from Second Corinthians 12, verses 20 and 21, the end of chapter 12, finish chapter 13 today, and we'll read that together. But before we do, this is our affirmation. We say, if you're new here at our church, uh, then this is a, a, an affirmation we recite before we read God's word together and just kind of centers our attitude about the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. So let's say it. Our pursuit is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the word of God. We will embrace it as truth. Or how countercultural it is to our souls. We will follow the King. As what we're doing, uh, we finished this series called Counterculture Today. That we are a people that desires to follow this book, follow uh, what God desires, and um, be countercultural people. And so, as I had let you know last week, we're picking up at the end of chapter 12, those two verses, and then the rest of 13 as Paul concludes this letter to the church in Corinth. It says this. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize that 
this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we will pray to God that you may do no wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I'm going to invite you to pray as we always do, that you would just ask God to teach you as we are closing this series, the aim of Paul there, verse 5, that we would examine ourselves, that the Spirit would do that in all of our lives um, to determine where we are with, with our relationship with the Lord today. So you pray and I'll pray for us collectively. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray now that you would speak, that you would change our hearts, transform them, that by the Spirit we would glean from this, this word, that you would teach us and change us and make us as you desire. And Father, we thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Exams or tests, final exams. I don't know about you, but I have never been a good test taker. And perhaps that was because I really really wasn't maybe the best student when I was younger, but I just wasn't a good test taker. And I've shared this story with some of you, uh, maybe even before, which if you've heard this before, that's just, I guess, the thing about being in one place at a long time. You get to hear all my stories. But uh, I had a final exam the so- at the end of my sophomore year in college in art history. Tons of fun there. And that was the last exam for that spring semester. Be going home after that. It was an 8 a.m. exam. And I remember I stayed up all night studying for this thing, a bunch of slides about who painted what in this era, and, and I was just cramming all night. And, and I was doing that mostly because I hadn't kept up on the work throughout the whole class, and here we are, the night before the final exam, I was up till 2, 3 in the morning, 8 a.m. exam, and I wake up the next morning about 8.45, and I wake up to the sound of blaring alarm clock. And you can imagine my, my energy of jumping out of the bed, looking and knowing what was going on. I don't even think I changed from whatever I was wearing. I threw on a hat and I booked it across campus to walk into a dark room where they were covering all these slides with minutes left on the exam. Well, that exam was 50% of the grade, of which I didn't have that good of a grade going into it. And so I failed and I failed the whole class. Oh, I want to cry now. Well, the worst part about that, the worst part about that was I had to take the same class and there was only one professor that offered it the next spring and she hated me anyways. And she embarrassed me during the first day of the new class. I didn't share this with the first service, but she said, you know, make sure you get enough rest. And I'm sitting in the room and make sure you just don't oversleep. We did have a student who did that. I'm like, I'm right here. Just invite me up to the front. But I failed the exam. I wasn't prepared for it, and I fell behind, and I failed. Hard lesson to learn. 
Well, Paul talks about a different kind of exam that we should do in our lives as he wraps this letter up, one far more important and one that has far more consequences than failing an art history class. You see, in this final portion of the letter, like most letters, Paul is wrapping things up. He wants to bring this letter to a close, and he's written these two letters. There was actually the third letter that we talked about, but he's written this, and he's trying to wrap it up. And so as often we do in letters, he's trying to impart that one final thing. And then even in the epistles, we see this happen in the New Testament, is that he'll just give you this kind of rapid fire. All this stuff is concluded in this last, last portion. It's like us when we write a letter. There's the one thing we want you to know, and then this and this, but we have to wrap it up. And he's doing that and kind of rushed, if you will, towards this ending, but he has a focal point, and it's verse 5. Examine yourselves. Take a test. Test yourselves to make sure if you are walking the Christian walk and secure in your faith with Christ. He wants them to know where their relationship is, and he wants them to know if they pass the exam or if they will stay up late, maybe in the wee hours of their life, cramming for it, and then it will be too late. He wants them to know of their relationship, its secureness with Christ. He wants them to examine themselves because the only test that counts is the one that says you are in the circle of faith with Christ. Now, Paul starts by acknowledging the tension in coming to them. We've covered this in the last several weeks in the nature of their relationship. In verse 20 and 21, he is issuing this stern warning. He says, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and may you, find, you might find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, de- jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. There's a list of sins that they were still caught in. And Paul is saying, I've warned you about this. I might come to you and might still find these unrepentant sins in the Christian community. That you are not like caring at all about these things, and you're just being disruptive within the church body. You're doing your own thing. And he says, I might find you like that. And you might find me not as you wish because I'm going to call you on it. He continues in verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they have practiced. That key word, repented, Many of them had not. We know that the church in Corinth was caught up in much sin, and they turned a blind eye to it. They didn't seem to be bothered by this, and yet Paul's desire was their holiness, their faithfulness in Christian living. And he issues a stern warning of coming to the church if it had still unrepentance in it, that he would deal with it. In fact, he says in the beginning of chapter 13, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And then he says this, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What's he talking about there? Paul is coming to make a judgment. And so that's what that two and three witness is about. It's an Old Testament practice that when you accuse something or was an accusation made, you had to have two or three witnesses And so Paul's alluding to the fact there, if something was going to be proven true, this accusation had witnesses, this judgment was coming. And Paul is coming to make a judgment on where they are in their Christian lives. This is why he issues the warning in verse 2. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when I was present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So Paul sees all this sin and sinfulness in the life of the church, and he wants to come towards it. He's counseled them 
away from these false teachers towards himself. He's counseled them to understand the fullness of the gospel and to understand the mission of the church body, drawing them in towards each other as they are first and foremost drawn towards reconciliation and restoration with God. The aim here is examining their Christian life. This third time Paul comes, he's not going to be so gracious. That's why he said, I've come to you, I've warned you. And he, we know from 1 Corinthians 5, when we studied that letter, he had expelled the immoral person in the church because of sin and sinfulness. He was authoritative and strong here. Remember, he's been accused of being really weak and ineloquent. And so Paul comes in strong and authoritative, but remembering that it is Christ in him speaking through him. And Paul reminds them of that power and authority behind his voice. That's why he points them towards the power of Christ and weakness once again in verses 3 and 4. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. What is he saying? The power of God transforms hearts. It's the power of God that is speaking through Paul in the desire for them to examine themselves now and look where they are with their relationship with Christ, where their relationship with God is. For in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. In other words, this is serious business Paul comes to them with. He desires that they are reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. He wants to make sure that the sin in their lives is being pushed out and what's ushered in is the grace of Christ in heart transformation. And so he wants them to test themselves. This is the aim, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, as you would before most exams, you would want to, to see if you were prepared. So you do study, right? Something I should have done much sooner than the night before. But what you do is you review, and often that's done through memory work. And you, you know, growing up doing flashcards, you want to understand what might be on the test, and you want to ask those questions, play it back with your answer. Do I know the material? And so you study to see if you're prepared enough. In the same way, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are truly in the faith. Do I understand the only test that counts? Now, you notice the word yourselves is mentioned three times in verse 5. If you have a Bible, it'd be good to underline that yourselves because it's used in one verse not only here in repetition, but it's also emphasized in the Greek by being out of place in the normal order of the sentence structure. So Paul's writing this with purpose. A more literal rendering would be this. You yourselves examine. You yourselves prove that Jesus Christ is in you. The fact that a believer trusts Christ by faith and then the Spirit is deposited, we have the power of Christ in us. Paul is saying, now you look at that, if that be true. You prove that through your works, if that be true. And his hope there in verse 6 is that they do not fail the test. Here's the thing. Many in our culture treat Christianity as a label. Just, again, it's a voting checkbox, right? 
or, or, or a form? What's your religion? And many people just identify themselves as something they believe in. Of course, I'm a Christian. Something that makes them maybe more moral or more conservative than the next guy. And many believe. Many would call themselves a Christian. It's true. But belief is only a part of faith. Now, the Bible is clear, and I have to stop here but as I say that. Faith in Christ is the only thing that saves. And this text should not lead us to think otherwise, that there is not some kind of work or amount of work that you could do to earn salvation. That's the gospel. The bad news is that we're all sinners with the wrath of God on our head from the moment we're born. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfectly righteous life, died on a cross, and took all of that because we never could earn God's favor without his bloodshed. So that must be clear. You cannot earn salvation any way, shape, or form by works. But there is something to be said about works coming from the result of genuine conversion, salvation, or faith. True repentance, and therefore true salvation, always has proof. I love how Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, one is the root. Think of it that way, salvation. One is the root, the other is the fruit. That's the works. That's the proof as we examine. And so testing and examining is one thing, but proof, evidence, right, goes deeper. We can examine things and believe things, but what happens when we run it into practice for the person who just calls themselves a Christian? Think of it like this. Here's a good example, that when they build a giant ship, when they construct it, right? If you've ever watched a time lapse of in the locks, they're building this massive ship and they get it all done and they they look around and they examine it, they test it. But what they don't do is they don't put that thing out into the ocean full speed on a long journey with a bunch of cargo and a bunch of people. Why? Because they don't know if it'll work yet. They have to prove it. So they send it out on a maiden voyage, a short trip to see if it's really seaworthy. That's what they do. They, they examine it after all that's completed, but they test it then and send it out. Another biblical ship in the Bible, the ark, would be another good example. I'm quite sure people around Noah, they thought he was crazy anyway when he got this command from God that judgment was coming and he had to build an ark. But I'm quite sure there were many around that would think this way. Yeah, I, I look at that and I believe that ark will swim. One says, I believe that ark is made of good gopher wood and strong from stern to stern. Yeah, I'm quite sure it'll float, come what may. I'm a firm believer in that ark. That's a good boat. Yes, but when the rain descended and the flood came, it was actually not believing in the ark, as a matter of fact. It was being in the ark that saved men, and only those that were in it escaped the day of wrath. Think about that. It didn't matter what they believed in in terms of that boat being seaworthy. On that day, it only mattered whether they were in the ark. What mattered is if they know Christ now, Paul is saying, in that same way. It doesn't matter if you talk about it and you're a church in a Christian community. It matter, matters whether you are truly in a relationship with Christ. And so Paul says, examine yourselves. Test to see if you are in the faith. You see, many in our culture come to the gospel with their own religion. It's what works for me, Right? our own ideas, and they choose it as if something is for them, and there's no real heart change. And so Paul was always driving at 
evidence from true repentance and heart change. And so he says, examine yourselves because the only test that counts is the one that says you're in the circle of faith with Christ. You see, we read from Matthew 7 earlier in our scripture reading, and Jesus in Matthew 7, 5 through 7, is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And he's teaching this list of applications, if you will, in the Christian life. And the end of what we read was our, our scripture reading, and Jesus, after talking about all of this Christian life, a life that was fully transformed by grace, like you'll be these things, blessed are the more, the 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 sorrowful, blessed are the weak, the meek, all these blesseds in the beginning of the Beatitudes there. And then he talks about how to handle all these relationships. You can tell if someone truly belongs to the Lord. He talks about gospel mission in the world. He talks about in that text, obedience to God's law. He talks about how to deal with your anger. He talks about the lustful heart. He talks about relationships. He talks about your word being your oath. He talks about your attitude and love towards people even your enemies. He talks about your prayer life. He talks about your service and how even you treat your money and give. He says all those things. He talks about your overall anxiety in the world at the end there of chapter six. How do you treat moments in life? Do you get anxious or you turn to God in faith? And at the end of all that, he says, there are things that will show or prove if you act on them rightly, whether you are in the kingdom of heaven or not, whether you are in the ark or not. And then in Matthew 7, 21, right before that text we read, he says, listen, or during, this is part of what he read, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, an oral confession does not always indicate a repentant heart. That verse alone should make us all not fear if you are in Christ, but pause and examine. So what then shows the repentant heart? Jesus said it mattered if people heard the words he spoke and then did them. That's what he was saying there with a the right heart, not out of a list of achievements towards moral perfection and religion, but from a life of grace and fellowship and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of a passage like James chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. It says it this way, Be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at the natural face in a mirror. And then it says later that it goes and forgets what he looks like. And then later in James 2, it says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Abraham was obedient to God in what he asked him to do. And his obedience just wasn't receiving the blessing of God and being circumcised and, and, and then going to be the father of the Israelite nation and all the blessings and promise, he actually acted on it. He had proof that he obeyed God, feared God, wanted to, to flesh that out in his obedience of his works. And such his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So there is something about saying that is different than doing and something about doing that proves what you are saying. And that's why Paul says, examine yourselves. Christian, 
is their proof. Now, this is so important because there are so many who call themselves Christians in the church who have never actually been transformed by the gospel. People that say they know the Lord, but who have never really met Christ in the power of the gospel, and their lives have been transformed. I think of an analogy of a, a show that Carrie and I have been watching called Away. And the premise is basically there's just this astronaut team that's headed towards Mars. And there's a bunch of characters around their family members that are back home. And you don't need to know all the details. You can be interested. Go find it yourself. But this, this team has a Russian astronaut on it. And there's this episode where the Russian astronaut, there's a part on the plane or the, the ship that breaks. And he's the only one that knows how to fix it. And so they want him to fix it. But his eyes are failing. He, his vision is getting poor, and so as proof for whether he can actually do this, they give him the eye test. And they all stand around him, and they do this eye test while they're up in space, and he, he does all the letters and gets them right. He's like, I proved it. But as he's working on the ship, they give him clearance to do this. There's a bolt that flies right past his vision, and he doesn't even see it. And one of the team members just says, stop what you're doing, realizing that he cannot actually see and then kind of like befuddlement, they look at him and say, like, how did you pass the eye test? And in that moment, he confesses. He said, I memorized the whole thing because I knew I had to do this. And so he memorized the whole eye chart, but he really couldn't see. I wonder how many people in the church have memorized the eye chart. But there is not an evidence of true sight in their life of the gospel. Think about that in our culture. We have so many people that know the lingo, know the language, sing the songs. And Paul's counsel and Paul's warning and admonition to the church was examine yourselves. Do you understand the grace of Christ? Have you been transformed by it? And Paul didn't want them to fail the test. His prayer that they would not do wrong and prove themselves faithful to the end. Look at verses 7 through 10. We pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test. Paul knew that he was sinful in his weakness. We'll talk about that in a moment. But that you may do what is right, turning in repentance, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things, that while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. Paul had gotten authority from the Lord to guide this church in sternness and rebuke even back towards restoration. He says, that is our hope, your restoration. That's what we're praying for, is that you come back and reconcile to God and therefore with each other. That you know the gospel and its transforming power and its nature. It's not just something you speak about, but it's something you know deep within your hearts and that has proof when you examine yourself. Paul desired that these believers would be presented to Christ mature. We read about that, studied that in chapter 11, blameless and pure. As a spiritual father, Paul wanted nothing more than to bring this church to the end of days, pure and holy. He does not want to be severe in his discipline. Now, this is really important that we understand this. Paul wasn't urging the Corinthians who truly trusted Christ to doubt their faith. This wasn't some scare tactic to somehow question whether they were truly saved, that they were in the faith. 
Now, doubt is a real part of the journey for any believer, but it's not one that should unravel our whole faith when we see sin in our lives. Though the fact is, suggesting that sinners saved by grace should be perfect or are perfect is a real problem because we aren't, and we acknowledge that. We have sin. In fact, that's why Jesus came to die. We would all be in trouble if we were supposed to be perfect as the test goes, if we were supposed to post 100%. We know that's not realistic. And so Paul isn't saying, here's the bar, you missed it, you're out. He's not saying that at all. Paul's point was that he wanted to see repentance and faith lived out. And in that, there would be growth and maturity in the body. It would evidence itself through proof. That's how you can tell. One is the root. The other is the fruit. Which is why he closes the letter with evidence of what a growing and mature Christ follower looks like in action. And he does this by kind of rapid-firing six things. And this is why you read the end of epistles sometimes, and you're like, wow, there's just a lot of information all packed in the last paragraph, and it just seems kind of scattered. This one, it really isn't. And these are all kind of commands that are, are geared towards relationships. As a way, Paul says, examine yourself. Think about these things within the context of the body. Do you see these things in small or great ways in your life of walking with Christ. And so he lists these six in verses 11 and 12. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. That's the first one, joy. Do you have joy in your life? Is it evident? Do you have... Now, some of us are more like externally joyful than others, but is there evidence of joy in your relationship with Christ, walking in joy, even in difficult circumstances? Do you see that in your life? Do others see that in your life? That maybe the world caves in from moment to moment as it would in our world with sin and, and, and circumstance happening. But is there joy in your heart because you know the main thing, the gospel? Paul says, look at that. Second thing, he says, aim for restoration. In this word, there's a fair degree of humility. Do I, do I desire to constantly, even in my sin, turn and restore my relationship with God and therefore that gospel shapes the way I restore relationships with others? Paul says, aim for that. Those who you, of you who are caught in sin, aim for restoration with God. Turn in repentance back. And those who are out of relationship with one another, aim for restoration in your fellowship. Do you see that? That's the second thing. And then he says, comforting one another. Do you show evidences of comforting one another, loving one another in the body? Do you show that? Do you show evidence of your life that you comfort others? You have a deep love for others. It's not just all about you all the time. And he says the fourth one, agreeing with each other. That's a tough one in 2020, right? Agreeing with one another. What Paul is saying, think of it this way, is do you share the same mind in the gospel? When you come together, do you share the same? Like, I, I got together with old friends a couple weekends ago that I haven't seen in 25 years. These are believing, trusting friends. And it was if we just picked up from where we left off because we understand the gospel. That's what unites us. We agree. Now, we don't agree probably on every little thing, but this was this attitude of the gospel, the same mind is how we view the world, which means the whole world is viewed through that lens. Politics, healthcare, you name it, it's all viewed through the lens of the gospel. And then he says, fifth, living in peace. That's what identifies a true Christian community. 
this unity of the Holy Spirit and peace with one another, that you would desire relationships with one another that are peaceful and gospel unifying. He says, live in peace. You can live in peace and have joy all the way at the top of the list in a world that's fallen apart. That's possible within a Christian community. Do you evidence peace in your life? And then he says this, the sixth one, which is not COVID-friendly, by the way, greeting one another with a holy kiss. That's how the brothers and sisters used to greet one another. The brothers would greet each other with a holy kiss. And you say, well, we can't do that. We shouldn't do that, right? And I'm saying the attitude is that of like a warm hug from somebody that's struggling on a Sunday morning. One of the great things I see about this church community is when I see fellowship happen and people are doing life together. There's this greeting that happens within the body when there's true fellowship and true peace and it's all evidenced with a true saving faith and a unity in the gospel community and the body of Christ. Think of it as encouragement towards one another, doing life one to another. You see, Paul's pastoral heart and the final words he makes this prayer at the end, and you can see it. And some of you would look at verse 14 and you'd say, well, that's just a standard New Testament prayer. I want you to see the Trinitarian expression here, and it actually shows the markers of one who passed the exam. Look at this. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In other words, the grace of the Lord Jesus, that's very personal, as if referring to your own salvation. Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever trusted Christ by faith? And is that personal to you? That's part one of the exam, right? Is that a personal decision you've made to follow Christ? And then he says, the love of God, as in, do you know the love of God? As in, do you know God's love for you identifies you as a child of his that ought to want to please him joyfully and worship him through delightful obedience. When you know how much God loves you, there would be nothing more than for us to want to love him back through obedience. Just like a son who wants to please his father, do you know the love that would cause me to act in repentance and faith and faithful obedience to God? Do you know the love of God? And thirdly, do you know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which is walking in step with and in tune with the power of the Spirit. That's a daily pattern of conviction and wisdom, right? And it doesn't come by being out of the Word of God. It doesn't come by just getting one verse a week on your Bible app on your phone. It doesn't come by, by overnight, except when you're in the Word of God and He's transforming your heart and you're communing with Him in prayer and you're bringing your struggle before Him in a real sense and He, by the power of His Spirit, is changing your heart and molding it and shaping it. Not because you're perfect, but because he's perfect. And our desire ought to be to be changed towards the perfect. And think about this as it's evidenced with relationship to others. So here's a good litmus test. I love how Paul says this, this last prayer in relationship to others. I love how he quotes this. He says, the grace of Christ removes aggressiveness. The love of God dispels jealousy. And the fellowship created by the Holy Spirit destroys bitterness. I love that. All of that evidence or fruit. And so where do we go from here as I wrap this up? I just want to give you three parts of something that you can do, questions you can ask of self-examination. What Paul was really after when he said examine yourselves, he was after proof, but he was also after the perception, what you would recognize 
And so there are three parts of this self-examination, test, proof, and perception. And these are just questions that I'll leave you with that you can say, these are good, good questions that I can ask in each of these three parts. The first is this, the test. Do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Have you experienced significant changes in knowing him? And do you experience his leading in your life? Do you know that you're walking in relationship with him and have you seen change? Test that. And then examine the proof. Can you show any evidence that you have really experienced new birth? Think about it this way. How different is your worldview since knowing Christ? Is it a biblical one? How different are your habits now, your goals, your relationships? When Christ transforms you, and none of us are where we want to be, but there's always a starting place in this. Can I see evidences that my habits are changing? Yes, Paul says, I always do what I don't want to do in my flesh, and there's sin, there's this stuff that just keeps coming, and you're like, why do I do that? But like, can I see habits changing over time? My goals, my relationships, the way I see the world, is there proof of my faith? And then the last one, perception. This is more about recognizing. Do you recognize the power and working of the Holy Spirit in your life? And maybe even a better question, do others recognize it? Do they see the Spirit working in you? Are you growing in fellowship with God and with others? Do people see growth and change happening? Is that recognized in your life? You see, the only test that counts is the one that says you are in the circle of faith with Christ. Art history to this day still does not matter all that much to me. But what does matter is when I stand before the throne of God on the judgment, at the judgment seat of Christ at the end days and Jesus claims me as his own. And if that be true, which I believe it is in my life, then I can freely serve him in grace and live in the beauty of the gospel, being joyfully obedient and constantly practicing a lifestyle of repentance and faith in Christ, knowing with great confidence that if that be true, Christ will hold me fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for that fact that in Christ, all who belong to him are secure. And Father, I have no doubt that there are many in this room, including myself, that struggle day to day. We have sin that we wish weren't a part of our lives. And yet you, as we sang about earlier, invite towards people towards yourself. Come ye sinners, weak and wounded, sick and sore. And Father, I pray for the one who has never trusted Christ fully, that they would this moment accept that invitation, that free gift, and give their lives to you, confessing their sin and sinfulness and demonstrating a need for a Savior, that only Jesus can forgive, that there is no amount of work that anybody can bring. And so, Father, I pray that that would happen this moment, that that one would cry out to you for forgiveness and that you would return to them your love and assurance and deposit of the Holy Spirit for their assurance of knowing you. Father, transform them. Transform all of us who are in Christ. Transform our hearts. Father, that we would examine ourselves constantly, not for the sake of feeling sorry for ourselves or being disappointed with where we are, but to know where we are so that we can start somewhere and make a change. 
God, you know our hearts better than anyone, better than our hearts, than we know our own hearts. And so, Father, I pray that we would take this seriously. And, Father, the changes that we need to make in our lives, that we would take a first step, a small one even, in a right direction. Maybe that's a relationship that needs repair. Maybe that's a sinful habit that needs to get put at bay. Father, that we would know the grace of Christ, your love, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you that in this life there are troubles, but that, that you have overcome the world and, and you hold us secure. And so Father, may we praise you about that now, even as we declare it through song, that Christ will hold us fast. And it is in, in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and sing our closing song together.